Well, good morning, everyone. We continue this morning working our way through the parables of Jesus as they are recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. And this week we come to a very familiar and very much loved parable. I'm sure that pretty much all of you here would have at some stage heard this parable. And if you haven't, then you probably know what we consider a good Samaritan to be because you've You've seen it on the names of hospitals and charities. We have Samaritan's Purse right here in, in this church. Um, Samaritans have come to mean something in our culture, and it is because of this, this story. Before we go any further, uh, we're going to just pause and read the parable and read the discussion that leads into the parable, because that is an important part of this story today. So we're reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, if you've got your scriptures with you. Luke 10, 25 to 27. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, I'm sure I would have easily have read this parable at least a hundred times, probably more. When our youngest two children were little, if ever I would let them choose the story at night time, they always chose this one, the Good Samaritan. Um, in fact, so much so did they choose this one that I ended up hiding the book and just 
not letting them choose this, which, which Bible story we were going to have at all. And it's perhaps our familiarity with this story that is its greatest problem for us. Its tension for us is all lost because we know the ending. And so familiar are we with the characters and the narrative in this story that we don't really give them a lot of thought, nor do we seek to explore how this parable might have sounded to those who first heard it. We think we know what it's all about. We perhaps have some picture in our mind's eye when we read through that story, and perhaps that's a picture that's born out of our Sunday school experience or out of reading books like the ones up there or looking at artwork like the one that is up on the screen. We think we know. But do we really stop to allow the message of this story to penetrate? Today we're going to work our way through this parable from the perspective of those who were hearing it first from Jesus. What did they see? in their mind's eye when Jesus describes the scene? What did they think and what did they feel when he speaks about the various characters in the story? We're going to begin this morning looking at the context of this parable. Now, context is always a great place to start. We don't always have context with the parables. Um, some of them, we don't have anything. But in this one, we do. And so when you have it, it's a good idea to use it because it helps with how we should interpret the parable. So we begin on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now already in that very first line, we get a sense for the tension that there is in this little scene here. We can assume that Jesus was seated because that is how rabbis taught. They always taught sitting down. That's how they did it in ancient Middle Eastern culture. So Jesus is seated and the expert in the law stands. And we're told he stands not simply to ask a question. The gospel writer here, Luke, wants us to know exactly why he stood. He stood to test Jesus. Now, who is this man who stands to test Jesus? Luke tells us that he's an expert in the law. We might have an image in our minds as to what an expert in the law might look like. We might think of an attorney or a judge or a lawyer. But this man isn't an expert in Roman civil law. He's an expert in the laws of Moses. So when you're thinking about this man, think more along the lines of a theologian than an attorney. He's a representative of the religious establishment. And they've all had their feathers ruffled by this new teacher in town. And so this man has come to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that seems like a great question. 
But when you stop to think about it, what can anybody do to inherit anything at all? An inheritance is a gift. You don't earn it. It is given to you. What the man is expressing here is a view, a false view, but it is a view that is still widely held today. And that is that there are some boxes that need to be ticked in order to be good enough to receive eternal life. You might have to give some shelter to a homeless person. Perhaps you look after the sick. Perhaps you dedicate your life to some worthy cause. You teach Sunday school or any number of things. And then you might be good enough to receive eternal life. So perhaps this expert in the law wants some boxes that he can tick. He wants to know which requirements, of all the requirements in the law, which, which are my top ten that I have to tick off to receive eternal life? Or maybe the greater question for him, the heart of the question that is behind this question that he asks and the test for Jesus is not which requirements of the law must be kept, but whether indeed the law still applies. What is the relationship of this new teacher to the law that the Israelites have followed for so many years? This new teacher seems to be saying some pretty radical things. Does he even believe that the inheritance of Israel is available through the keeping of the law? Now, Jesus seems to know what he's up to. And so it is to the law that he turns to address the man. What is written in the law, he asks. How do you read it? Well, this expert in the law already knew the answer to his own question. All good debaters and lawyers already know the answers to the questions that they ask. And like every other Jew, this man had carried around in a little calfskin box on his forehead and on his bound on his arms, the law inscribed in miniature, as was their interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And... Love your neighbour as yourself. It's a fabulous answer. This man, he knows the requirements of the law. In fact, this is the same answer that Jesus himself had given when he was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was. And Jesus is quick to respond to him. You have answered correctly, he says. But the issue at hand here is not whether this expert in the law knows the requirements of the law and knows the teachings. The issue at hand here is whether he's willing to carry them out. Do this and you will live, says Jesus, and he's quoting there from Leviticus chapter 18. Now, in the language of the day, um, Jesus gave that expression in what is called the present imperative form. 
So this is not a once-off. It's not do this and you will live. It's keep on doing this and you will live. So the expert in the law, he's looking for a list. He's looking for check boxes. He'd hoped to test Jesus, and now all of a sudden things have turned very personal on him. And so he tries to regain a bit of a footing here and divert the attention in some other direction and justify his original question. So he asks Jesus another question. And who is my neighbour? What, in effect, he's asking here is, do I have to love everybody? Now, the rabbis of the day had all kinds of views on this. Some of them had even gone so far as to reinterpret that part of the law to mean, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But for the most part, the term neighbour was synonymous with the term brother or fellow Israelite. And there was much debate even about who should love who within that category. So you should love your brother, your neighbour, your brother, your fellow Israelite. What about the proselytes, the Jews who had converted to Judaism and who weren't born full-blood Jews, do we have to love them? What about the priests? Do they have to love everybody or are they kind of a different category? And so Jesus' answer to this man comes not in the form of a whole lot of rules and regulations about who he should love and who he shouldn't love and under which circumstances you should love this one and not love that one. Instead, he tells them this now very famous story. And he begins, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And although Jesus is telling a story here, he's very specific about what details he's including. And when you get details like that in a story, they are probably there for a reason. And in this case, they're there to paint a picture for the people who are listening. So... Jerusalem is up in the hill country. It's in mountainous area. It is 700 metres above sea level. Jericho is 400 metres below sea level. So the man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's descending 1,100 metres over a distance of about 25 kilometres. So this is a relatively steep descent that he's making. And this particular stretch of road was a notorious stretch of road. Now, we might have, from our Sunday school days, had in our minds eye a view of what this road might look like, and many of us would think of a road as wide as the road outside here. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho in those days would be classified more like a track for us. They were built for walking and for donkeys maybe. They weren't built for cars um, or for overtaking. 
So they were little tracks and it was windy, it was rocky, it was dry, there was nothing growing there because it was desert um, and it was steep. And along the way was dotted many caves and crevices which made the place a magnet for bands of thieves who would ambush travellers as they came along the road. Such was the reputation of this particular stretch of road that it had earned the nickname the Way of Blood because plenty of blood was shed on that road. So what this man was doing, travelling by himself down this road, we'll never know. But Jesus tells us he meets with trouble on the way and he falls into the hands of robbers who strip him of his clothes, beat him, and leave him half dead. Again, lots of important details in there. Now, it's often assumed that this traveller was a Jew, but there is absolutely nothing in the scriptures to indicate anything about the ethnicity of this particular person. The simplest way for us, even today, to tell someone's ethnicity is to listen to how they speak. They have an accent about them. You know, South Africans sound like South Africans, Americans sound like Americans. Doesn't matter where you come from, you have a certain distinctive sound about you. But this man is described as being half dead. So, in all likelihood, he's probably unconscious, not likely able to speak. If he is conscious, he's probably so badly beaten that he's not going to be able to speak anyway. So if speech is taken from you, then sometimes you can tell by the way a person's looking. You know, if we see someone wearing a sari today, we've got a pretty good idea of where they come from. But how is this man described? He's naked. All his clothes have been taken from him. He cannot be identified by the way he sounds or by what he's wearing. So if all of that's been taken away, what else could there be? Well, perhaps his facial features. You know, some nationalities have quite distinctive facial features. Maybe that will give some clue. But Jesus has described this man as being badly beaten. So he's probably bruised, swollen in the face, bloodied in the face. What Jesus has done here with this character, I think, is very deliberate. He's taken from him everything that could possibly be used to identify him. No one can tell. Is he a Jew? Is he a Samaritan? Is he a heathen? He's just been reduced to a human being in need of help on the road. And so who's going to help him? Well, along comes Exhibit A, and Exhibit A is the priest. Now, most likely this guy would have been riding on a donkey because people of his status normally would not be walking 25 kilometres through a desert on their own. So likely this guy's riding on a donkey. 
priest surveys the scene before him and then carefully passes by on the other side. Now, thinking back to how that road looked, it's not easy to pass by on the other side. You can't sort of claim that you didn't see the guy. You're almost going to have to step over him to go round the other side. Now, often it is supposed that this priest had religious duties to perform. And many times this story has been told as a story of being too busy in your Christian duties to take care of, you know, a person in need. Because he, you know, he didn't want to disqualify himself from his Christian or his religious duties um, by potentially touching a dead body or a body that, if it's not dead now, could be dead soon and so defile him and cause him to have to go through the cleansing ritual. Now, this all seems like a feasible argument, but it's not really what the, the scripture tells us. If you read verse 31, verse 31 tells us that this priest happened to be going down the same road. So if he's going down the road, to which town is he heading? He's heading to Jericho. He's heading away from Jerusalem, which is where the temple and his priestly duties are, and he's heading down to Jericho. So more likely than not, he's already finished his duties at the temple and he's perhaps heading home now. And we can only guess what his motivations might have been for passing by this person in need. We're not told. The scripture doesn't tell us. Perhaps he was in a hurry. He wanted to get home. And helping out was going to mean he was delayed and further time away from home. Perhaps he did have a legitimate concern that this person was dead on the road. And if not dead, that he was soon going to be dead and that by having contact with him, yes, he was going to have to then go through the ritual cleansing um, procedure and that was going to entail a journey back to Jerusalem and then he'd be delayed for ages getting home. Or maybe it's possible that he actually believed he was doing the right thing. Now, how could this be so? How could anyone believe that they were doing the right thing when there's a man in need on the side of the road? Well, David Penman, in his book on the parables of Jesus, introduces us to an e extract from one of the non-Jewish biblical writers of the day. And I think that extract provides some insight as to what possibly could be a motivating force here. It says there, give to a devout man, do not go to the help of a sinner. Do good to a humble man, give nothing to a godless one. For the Most High himself detests sinners. Now, if that mindset reflected the mindset of the priests, and I'm not saying it did, it's just one possibility, if it did then to do good to this man could be to be doing good to a sinner. And if the Most High himself detests sinners, then the priest could actually be working against God. And it could be one way of justifying 
his actions. Because after all, he can't tell who this man is. He's got no idea because he's naked, beaten and half dead on the side of the road. So perhaps this was a risk not worth taking for the priest. So Exhibit A moves on and Exhibit B enters. Exhibit B is also a religious man. He is a Levite. So he's also had an important role to play in the temple and most likely he's now also on his way after having completed his duties. Again, we're not told what his motives are, but for whatever reason, he too decides to pass by on the other side of the road. Now, any of you who've ever walked down mountain trails will know that mostly they're windy. You don't go straight down. You go like that, down the trail in a winding sort of way. And presumably these two are travelling in the same direction, away from the temple. And so it's very likely that the Levite had seen the priest making his way down in front of him in the distance. Maybe his motivation was similar to that of the priest, or maybe, having seen the example of the priest, he perhaps thought it best to do likewise. After all, if the Holy One from the temple thought it best to pass by, well, then maybe that was what the law required. We don't know. But whatever it is, the Levite also decides to move on. Now, by this point, all of Jesus' listeners are hooked into this story because they know what's going to happen next, at least they think that they do. Priest, Levite, Israelite. That was how the, the Jews were described back then in, in those categories. Priest, Levite, Israelite or lay person. Those categories were used in conversation every day repeatedly, day in and day out. Priest, Levite, Israelite, priest, Levite, Israelite. So they know who's coming next down the road. They've had the priest, they've had the Israelite next. They've had the priest, they've had the Levite. Next it's going to be the Israelite, the lay person. It's the lay person who's going to be the hero of this story. And Jesus is having a go at the religious authorities. And then... Jesus utters the S word. The third traveller, he's not an Israelite lay person. To everyone's absolute horror, he's a Samaritan. And it is very difficult for us to imagine the shock and horror in this story. It's very difficult for us to imagine how ingrained was the hatred of the Jews for the Samaritans. Maybe if you make your man who's beaten and left naked on the road a member of the Ku Klux Klan and the one who comes to help, a black African-American, maybe you've got some modern contextualisation of the story there. The Samaritans were half-blood Jews. 
So after the Northern Kingdom had been carried off into exile, the few Jews who remained intermarried with those foreigners who were brought in from other nations to settle um, and occupy the land. So they were Jewish people who had intermingled their blood with foreigners. And that's why they were disliked um, by the Jews. Now, after the exile, when the exiles had returned, it was these Samaritans who volunteered to help to rebuild the temple. But with a fresh zeal for the Torah that the, the exiles brought back with them and a, a renewed desire to keep themselves totally pure, they had actually turned down the offer of the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans had instead gone and built a temple on their own mountain, on Mount Gerizim, and things just further and further deteriorated between the two groups. One ancient saying even says, he that eats the bread of Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. That is to say, he is completely and utterly defiled. Now, the first thing that Jesus tells us about this Samaritan is that when he saw him, he took pity or he had compassion on him. And this is significant on two counts. Firstly, because three men had passed by. Only one of them took pity or felt compassion. And the first two were representatives of God who served in the temple, and the third was not. This compassion or lack of compassion is the key difference between the characters in this story. Secondly, compassion is important because elsewhere in the gospel, the term that is used here for pity or compassion is used only of Jesus and of the father of the prodigal son. And when we come to that parable, we'll see that the father actually stands to represent God in that story. He functions as a figure for God. So compassion in Luke's gospel is a characteristic of God. And it was the Samaritan who was exhibiting this characteristic. The Samaritan's compassion isn't just a feeling or an emotion that he has. He doesn't just feel sorry for this guy. Compassion is more than just feeling sorry. It is something that you can turn or that turns into an action. It forces you to act. It prevents you from just walking away and doing nothing. And so this Samaritan, he's compelled to act on behalf of this man on the road. So he bandages up the man's wounds. And in our minds, we see, yes, he's, you know, he's supplying some first aid. Now, it's, like, it's highly unlikely he had a first aid kit with him. So he's most likely had to tear up his own clothes to, to bandage this man's wounds. But this is another significant statement here in this story. In the Old Testament, 
This binding up of wounds is used as a means to describe the healing work of God. And so I've given you three of quite a few references up, up here. Psalm 147 verse 3, speaking of God, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Or the very well-known Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Or Hosea 6.1, come let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He's injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. So here it is not the priest and not the Levite, but a despised Samaritan who is doing this healing work of God. It's a Samaritan who's acting as God's agent in this case. Next, the Samaritan pours oil and wine on his wounds, two elements that were used in worship as offerings and here offered for the healing of another. Finally, the Samaritan hoists the man over his donkey and takes him to the nearest inn. Can you imagine if that man was indeed a Jew? What a risk the Samaritan man must have taken to do this. Even if he wasn't a Jew, the man leading him is obviously a Samaritan. And so what are the people going to think when they see a Samaritan coming with a, with a half-dead body behind him? They're going to jump to all sorts of conclusions about him. The Samaritan man takes care of of the injured man overnight and when he must go he makes sure that uh, the injured man is going to be provided for even in his absence and there is no sense anywhere in this story that this Samaritan has any expectation of ever being repaid for the good deed that he's done nor does he have any expectation of any thanks for what he has done this is a spontaneous expression of love that is born out of compassion for another human being in need. By now, we get a sense for how Jesus' listeners are feeling. They are by now completely dumbfounded at the way that this story has turned. Having completed the story... Jesus turns to the expert in the law and asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law can't bring himself to say the S word. Instead, he replies, the one who had mercy on him. And again, the word that is used here is very significant because mercy is mentioned quite a few times in Luke's gospel, but it is mentioned only as something that is extended to others by God or by his agent here on earth, Jesus. So within Luke's gospel, the good Samaritan who had compassion 
and extended mercy is functioning here as a, as a Christ figure. He's acting as God's agent on earth. Jesus rounds out his teaching with a very simple command, go and do likewise. To be like the Samaritan then is to be like Christ. To look upon others with the compassionate eyes of Christ and to be moved to act. In her book, uh, The Jesus Style, author Gail Irwin tells of a conversation she had at a Christian festival with two couples. One of the couples was a Christian couple, the other couple was a Buddhist couple. And some point in the midst of that conversation, one of the members of the Christian couple uh, lights up a cigarette and does so apologising, saying that they know that they're trying to, to give up because they know that this is, is not a great testimony. Well, the Buddhist woman immediately responded, we non-Christians, when one of our ranks becomes a Christian, we don't watch to see how well they live up to some self-imposed standard of piety. We watch them to see how they start treating others. What do people look like? What do people see when they look at us? What do they see in how we treat others? Do we only look after our own? Are we very busy caring for other Christians? Or does our compassion extend to those outside of these four walls? Is our love unconditional? Notice here what Jesus has done with the original question. The original question was, who is my neighbour? But he's reshaped it so that the important concern is not so much who is my neighbour, but who became a neighbour. A direct answer to the expert's question is never given, but it is pretty obvious. My neighbour is not just my fellow Jew, or in our case today, our neighbour is not just our fellow Christian. My neighbour is not just those I identify with or those I live near to or even those that I happen to get along well with. My neighbour is anyone who needs me. My neighbour may well be someone I don't like or even someone that I don't trust. My neighbour may have completely different beliefs to me. And my neighbour may not even be grateful for my help. It might be costly or time-consuming for me to help my neighbour. I might never be acknowledged or repaid for any of my efforts. I may well be able to come up with all sorts of seemingly valid reasons to not get involved. It doesn't matter. I must become a neighbour to those who are in need, because Jesus said simply, go and do likewise. There were no clauses on the end of that command. Let us pray.
Father God, we thank you for this powerful story and for all that it tells us about what it means to be like Christ. It is so easy for us to turn our eyes away from so much need that we see in this world. We are quick to rationalise and quick to justify our actions when you said simply go and do likewise. Lord, would you bring across each of our paths this week someone in need? And when that happens, Lord, would you remind us of the Christ-like compassion of the Samaritan and of your commission to go and do likewise? Thank you, Father. Amen.